This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hi, Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz. Thanks for listening. This episode is somewhat of a continuation of the last episode where I had talked about my eight-year play-by-post AD&D campaign that had just wrapped up a major arc. That episode prompted a great question from Daniel of Bandit Keeps Podcast, so I'll be answering that and talking about how I manage time and space when multiple groups are sharing the campaign world alongside a war games campaign at the same time. So Daniel had left some comments on Dungeon 23 as well as his question, so I've split his call up so we can listen to his question first. Take it away. I had a question because I don't think you said. So you mentioned how you put the, the, the pace of the play-by-post is so much slower than the in-person. So you put them far away. But where are they time-wise now? Are they, uh, did they catch up? <laughs> you know, I mean, did, is the play-by-post still like in the first year while the play in person is at 15 years later? I'd be curious to know, you know where they are. And if one of them is, well, the play-by-post more, more relevantly probably, is behind, if it's not that far behind, or even if it is far behind, would you consider like jumping forward 10 years or something to like catch it up so that you could uh, use stuff that's more in the world now? I'd be curious if that's something you thought about. Because um, that, that always fascinates me when things run at different times. And one of the things I really admire about your campaign world is that you run all these different things. And they're all kind of in the world for the most part, right? As far as I understand from what you've been saying. So that's just so cool. You know, I, I'm, every campaign I do is a completely different world. And it would be really neat to kind of push them all into one. So that's kind of what I'm eyeballing for the future. So I'm definitely um, going back and listening to some of your older shows now as well to kind of pick up that little bits of stuff that I'd heard. But now I want to really absorb better. So thanks for doing the great job you do. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Daniel, for that great set of questions. To answer it, though, I need to go back to how the Atenera campaign world started back in 2009. And that was as a West Marches game, based on the concept that Ben Robbins of Ars Ludi blog came up with. Part of what he did with the West Marches is that he ran a style of game that promoted multiple groups sharing information, and they were exploring common areas and even potentially being in competition with each other. Now, there's a lot of other aspects of West Marches, but that I think is most germane to answer your question because that was really cool. The idea that you could have multiple groups interacting with each other and doing things in the same campaign world, and that kind of planted the seed. So I started my campaign, and for about 16 months, I actually had that happen in the area where I kicked off the campaign. I had two groups. One group met at a game store in Chicago called Games Plus, and another group met at a different game store on a different evening, and that uh, game store was called Dice Dojo. And that went on, like I said, for about 16 months. Now, it was a lot of work, and... Right away, it taught me some key lessons that actually Gary Gygax had suggested early on in the first Dungeon Master's Guide. And of course, we all make fun of it, uh, where he says, quote, 
Game time is of the utmost importance. Failure to keep track of time expenditure by player characters will result in many anomalies for the game, end quote. Well, that was pretty true, <laughs> you know. And Gary goes on to talk about, you know, creating magic items and healing and so forth and keeping track of that. But there's another aspect to the keeping track of time. And that's keeping track of the effect that players have on the world and how that would be seen by other player groups. So I came up with two key rules that really helped me with the groups running simultaneously in roughly the same area. The first one was no game session will end in the dungeon. You start in civilization and you end in civilization. If you don't, because you either mismanage time or what have you, then I use a old random chart from the early days of the OSR called the, quote, triple secret random dungeon fate chart of very probable doom, <laughs> end quote. You know, if I use that, you have a chance of making it back, mostly. <laughs> anyway, the idea here was, because one of the banes of time is, oh, a group is stuck in a dungeon, so we have to quote-unquote freeze time, otherwise I'm busy rolling random encounters, you know, till they, till they reassemble. It was just easier, just to enforce the rule, start in, a dun or start in civilization, end in civilization. And the players got used to that. Now, the second rule that I had was that if a group leapfrogs another in time significantly, then that's the new high watermark of what the date is when play continues for any for the next group that would meet. Uh, you know, basically intervening time would be downtime. So if group A was, you know, on the first day of summer and they played for three days and then group B met and they were also on the first day of summer, but they played till the 10th day of summer, then when group A meets, if they're the next group, they would start on the 11th day of summer and the intervening time the 3 to 11 is just downtime and we'd figure out what happened then if needed and for the most part that worked pretty well it was simple and it kept things mostly on track for me I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this here and I don't recall any big problems that came about because of all this and it really afforded me the opportunity to keep a lid on things and kind of keep track of how things were going on and how things were progressing and what I started to do was keep a list of events and dates that they happen, both, you know, in-game and then what happened, you know, when the groups met in real life. So that I could go back and if I needed to, I could trace something from the very first time that it happened on forward. Now, here's a side note, too. I still have those um, notebooks from 14 years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to attest to how well I took notes, but the major things are in there. And it's kind of fun to read some of the things that were going on and, and uh, uh, things that I was thinking back then and to see how they progressed. Anyway, so what does this have to do with my uh, play-by-post game? Well, in mid-2009, you know, I started the, the play-by-post and, and this immediately presented me with a big problem. Play-by-post games are slow just by their nature. You know, an action that might take minutes to describe and adjudicate, you know, in a face-to-face -face setting is going to take a lot longer when we're waiting for people to post their actions and we're waiting for me to post the results and so on. A combat of three to five rounds might take a week or two to resolve in play-by-post. That's going to cause some problems for a time period. So 
I couldn't use the same rules for a play-by-post campaign that I was doing for my multiple groups. What am I going to do? be honest, I took the easiest, simplest way out of it. I just put the players on the other side of the continent. It was very unlikely that players from the eastern borders would ever have a need or a desire to take a game year to travel to the other side of the continent to explore the island city of Ramathia. So I felt like this was a pretty good approach. Now, it did kind of mean that um, I'd have to somehow explain or integrate any world-shaking events from the play-by-post if the players made those kinds of impact on my game world. And I'd have to somehow explain it and integrate it into the players that are ahead in the future. I've had to do that. One of the things I tried to do, though, with the play-by-post to not limit that, but to maybe lessen the likelihood, was I really focused on more regional and local issues and quests. You know, things that were important and things that were engaging to the players and would give them a reason to you know interact with the world, but not necessarily as, you know, um, earth-shattering as, say, what my tabletop game was going through. So how did that work? Well, how, or how did I make that all work, rather? So part of what I've done in my world is I have an overall master calendar. Um, it's just a simple spreadsheet, and it says, in six months, this is going to happen. In three you know, months after that, this should happen, and so on and so on. And this is if nothing else affects it. There's no random events, you know, everything runs on the railroad track. True railroad, from point A to point Z, this is the timeline of how things are going to occur. Um, you know, but as the players do things, that timeline's going to get changed. Things might not happen, or they might happen differently than what was intended. You know, the players may stop a thread completely, or they may not, and that thread just runs on the track right to completion. So with that in mind, um, there were a couple of seeds in the play-by-post area, which could have world-shaking events, but it didn't necessarily emphasize them beyond what I was emphasizing, the more regional effects. Um, in the region, I was pushing the concept that there was this bandit named Del Monte who was raiding caravans and, and really threatening the livelihood of this little uh, portside small city that was just barely hanging on. Um, but I planted the other seed that, hey, the elves are here and they're looking for evidence of their long-lost homeland. Now, overall, and, and I can talk about this, you know, that seed was meant to the, the Demonte seed is its own thing, and I'm not going to get into that because the players didn't follow that. But for the seed of the elves, the idea was that if the players were to pick up that thread and follow it to the end, they would find out that the elves didn't come from a homeland. They are actually refugees from under the ocean because land elves are really sea elves that ran away and came to land and adapted to living on the land. Um, the sea elves are extremely warlike. Think of a combination of Klingon battle lust and single-minded ancient Spartans dedicated to battle. 
That's the sea elf culture. And if the sea elves ever found out that the refugees, who they saw as traitors, were still alive, they would declare total war. So, <laughs> as it is, the players didn't follow the, the band. Well, they, they were interested in the bandits, but they became more interested and engaged with the elves um, through just how play happened. And so they followed this thread. And eventually the final conflict and the way that arc uh, wrapped up was that there was a splinter faction of elves who didn't buy that you know the the sea elves were total warlike you know they wanted to reconnect with their heritage and and their noble birthright and unfortunately they acted like a bunch of sea elves because they killed kidnapped and risked everything just to try to do this and the pc stopped them but a signal got sent so how did that affect everything? Now, mind you, I'm trying to keep track of all this with them on top of that as the play-by-post game is proceeded, well, so has my tabletop game and my online Discord game and the war games that are in my campaign world. Now, spoilers, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, in the future, the Sea Elves did actually come to uh, the mainlands. And I had this kind of planned out that in my master calendar, if the players didn't interfere, at some point the sea elves were going to come attack. But it was because chaos had called them. Instead, because the players had set off a chain of events by exploring a long lost library and getting involved with that, they pulled and started this thread, which ended with them, you know basically setting off a situation where now the sea elves have been alerted differently. And the thing is, is, the PCs prevented that total war, at least for now, because they didn't let the bad guys finish the ritual and do the contact and make it all happen. So... Again, because things have been happening in the future while they've been happening in the past, and I hope you're hanging on with this because this is a little bit confusing, um, I had run a couple of war game scenarios with the Sea Elves attacking because I wanted to set up things for players who were starting to get kind of close to the area where the Sea Elves would be attacking. And this is my tabletop group who is playing in the future beyond where the play-by-post fo folks are. So... You might say, well, Mike, if you already had the sea elves attacking, did you take away the agency of the players and reduce the victory? And the answer is no. I don't believe I did. Because had they not interfered, things would have been a lot worse. And those couple of battles that I've run are in a gray area where I can say, this is why it happened, this is how it happened, and it fits. So, <laughs> um, all that to say is that, you know, the main thrust that this, what's going to happen now with the CLs is vastly different as compared to what it would have been had the players not gotten involved and not done the thing that they were going to do. So, it all worked out. And I don't want to say any more because I don't want to drop any spoilers, but that that's kind of how I've woven what the play-by-post players have done into the overall fabric of the future. Now, you were asking me 
a um, little bit about how I manage this and dates and whatnot. So how I manage all of this is nothing more than just keeping track of things on calendars. I have a booklet for each year of my campaign and notes when something happens as well as notes on when those ripple effects, news of the event or something happening or somebody showing up or something else going on in the different areas where the players are playing. So if something happens on one side of the continent, it's going to take about a year for that news to potentially reach the other side. So I got a little time, but I keep track of all of that. Um, you know, I can plan it in the calendar that, okay, you know, the king was almost kidnapped. Well, um, the players in Anonia are going to find out in late winter. Well, the players up to the north are going to find out in early summer. Again, everything moves by the speed of horse, and I have that all noted down on my calendar, so that way when I get to that point, oh, hey, players, guess what the talk of the town is? Well, the king was almost kidnapped, and yada, yada, yada. Um... To answer dates, so when my campaign started, it was the 56th year after the apocalypse of my world happened. As of right now, with this arc ending, the play-by-post campaign is in autumn of the 57th year. Now, the end of the winter is actually when the new year changes over and, and the dates switch. For my online games, and that's the tabletop game that's online right now, as well as the Discord game, they are in the winter of the 59th year, heading into the spring of the 60th year. So the, the, the two online games are roughly parallel right now, and, and, and that's working out really well. Um, eventually, when the tabletop game starts meeting face-to-face, and we're playing you know six to eight hours at a time, and they start chewing up time, we'll have to see how things go and if that has any effect. So you asked if I would consider jumping forward to quote-unquote current time if the players in the play-by-post game asked. Absolutely. You know, I'd have to see how the various factions and whatnot played out because there may be some significant events that happen on a local level. You know, if the players are movers and shakers in this certain thing and these events were going to affect them, then there might be some resolution that we have to figure out together. But, but yeah, absolutely I would. Now... Again, because the play-by-boast has been more regional in nature, they haven't necessarily touched on any of the threads that are, you know, so world-shaking that if they did skip time and jump to the present, that it would be an issue. Um, designer luck, I, 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 you know, I'm not going to take credit for that, but I think it would work out okay. Um, you know, they've talked about where they do want to skip forward a couple of months, but nobody's come up with the suggestion of, hey, I want to move to current time, because... They're not as involved with necessarily the world-shaking events like the other um, campaigns are. So we'll see how it goes. I got to admit, you know, I've spent 16 minutes going on about you know, different events and different times and all of that. And <laughs> I look at this sometime and go, you know, you're really crazy for doing this. But I guess sitting where I'm sitting because I have the information, because I have timelines, because I have calendars, because I have this organized and mapped out, much as Gary advised, it's worked out pretty well. Don't ask me about keeping track of every NPC that the players run into because it never fails. I won't write that PC's name down. 
I won't note anything about them. And the pieces go, come to town and they'll go, oh, hey, I want to talk to so-and-so because they were so much fun. And I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> and so it becomes a mad scramble. I'll be like, oh, yeah, what did you like about so-and-so? What do you remember about them? And then they'll tell it to me and hopefully it'll jog a memory or I just go on with that. But anyway, <laughs> I just wish I had a better memory. So I hope that's answered your question. Um, it, it's a great question, and I appreciate the opportunity to answer it and go a little bit about how I manage time across the campaign. I have to say, if you do decide to run a merged world, it is very rewarding, but it's definitely an exercise in coordination and organization. But it is really cool to see ripples go across in many big and little ways. And, and I'm going to close this episode and give you one of those stories. So I do have an instance where two games on different sides of the world made contact. And that was the online Discord game and the tabletop game. So the tabletop game has featured a player who's played a priest and a paladin of a god named Tangadoran. And he is fanatical about Tangadoran, and I love it. The enthusiasm that he brings and, and the way he really gets into trying to convert everyone to Tangadoran, it, it's just, it, it's become a meme of the game in and of itself. So when I started my online game, my Discord game, one of my players rolled up a paladin, and they liked the concept of how I had made a paladin into a champion of a deity rather than just a lawful good um, restricted class. And I've also altered the powers of a paladin to match the deity that you know they're in league with. And so he liked the Tangadorn stuff so much, he decided he was going to become a paladin of Tangadorn. So... I had to tell my tabletop player this, and I did it through the guise of speaking to him as if I was the god Tangadoran and letting him know, hey, there's, you know, a, a new person has arisen and, you know, you need to do what you can to help them. So my tabletop player sent a care package of stuff to the online player. So, you know, I dutifully noted down what day of the year that that would, uh, care package would arrive, and I waited and I waited, and it took about... I say about nine months of actual real world time before we got the, the online game had skipped forward ahead enough and progressed enough in the calendar that the care package arrived by horse. And, you know, it was so neat because I didn't tell the online player this was coming. He was thrilled. And my, my, uh, my uh, tabletop player was thrilled. And I did manage to get them two together to talk for a little bit. And two paladins talking to each other about their god is like, listening to two young teenagers of any persuasion talk about their favorite whatever it was indescribable but it was really cool and it makes these kinds of things so worth it anyway um I am not going to have enough time to cover anything else in this podcast episode. So I apologize to Jason for not being able to get to your call-in yet. And Daniel, I will get to the first half of your call-in with your comments about uh, Dungeon 23 in the next episode. If you would like to ask questions, be a part of this podcast, and be a part of the discussion, I will leave how to get a hold of me in the show notes and you can do so. So until next time, grab your calendars, keep careful track of time, and game on.